And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, you know how much I love Halloween. What better gift this holiday season than to start it a little bit early? You know, how about four episodes? I'm going to call this the Quadrilogy of Terror, if that that is a word. Well, I know terror is a word, but uh, Quadrilogy may not be. I've just introduced it into the lexicon. So, today's episode is going to be about what I think is one of the, I'm not alone in this, I'm not, this is a unique thought, but it is (laughs) The Exorcist, that it is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And I think it might be one of the best movies of all time, or at least the most influential, you know, culturally, aesthetically, uh, spiritually. There's a lot going on in this movie. And hopefully we're going to get to all of that today with Nat Segaloff, who wrote a great book called The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. So hopefully we're going to get into some pretty weird stuff today. Uh, let's get started. Nat, thank you so much for being on the show today. What is what is Nat short for? Is it like the natural? <laughs> it's short for Nathan. Uh, but my parents were adamant about making it Nat instead of Nate. Really? <laughs> How come? I don't, I don't, I don't know why. I, Nate is a guy who works in a delicatessen and has a dirty apron, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> I, I, at least this is not Nat like G-N-A-T. <laughs> That's at least, you, know. you know, if I heard that once when I was in school, Daniel, I've heard it a thousand times. So you're not telling. I'm sorry. That's I'm going to take a Mickey on you. No, that's I okay. think we both we we we've both been around enough. So why don't we start this thing and just see what well, happens? Well, this this is the start of it. So don't oh, take really? it early. Well, yeah, me... don't take it early on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, if you watched one of these before, you'd you'd know this. Um, so you were a professor at Boston University, which is you know, my alma mater. Yeah, I don't even know. Oh, we no may kidding. have been. Yeah, we may have been. You may. I, I may have been a, a, close to taking a class of yours. When were you incarcerated? Uh, early turn of the century. Uh, no, sorry. I uh, I was paroled in uh, 1991. I was a critic in town. I was doing radio, TV, and newspapers in Boston. Right. When it turned out the professor uh, that I had worked with very closely. Uh, passed away and they asked me to take over some of his courses which was remarkable but I had such a high profile they didn't care about my credentials I didn't have a master's and so I took over the courses revamped them entirely and I said I'm going to work here because I had graduated from Boston University just long enough to earn back my tuition and then I'm going to quit yeah and it was one year past when my tuition had been earned back and they started messing around with me. And while I was in the Dean's office negotiating for a better salary, cause I hadn't had a raise in 10 years, they were calling around to my colleagues to take over my job. <laughs> and I, and I found out about that and quit on the spot and nobody else took it either. So well, he was <laughs> screwed for the semester and it serves them right. I I've never given any money to them. <laughs> You know, one 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 BU person to another. Don't let the world know about it. In fact, I didn't even tell anybody for years that I had gone to Boston University. It's Is that just, right? Well, why? I mean, we were graduated in 1970, or rather, we weren't graduated in 1970 because we were closed down for Kent State, and we had a right-wing president named John Silber, who nobody liked except the trustees, and they only liked him because he had purged the trustees of everybody who didn't like him, and my entire class. A, didn't get a graduation ceremony, which really bothered our parents. And secondly, I don't think we've ever given a dime to the school. Thousands of people. I, I never really understood why people give money. I mean, you already spent thousands of dollars going to school there. Why are you giving money? I mean, unless you're going to get something named after you. 
Uh, <laughs> right, which will hey, hardly I, I, hold that. I want everyone listening to put put a pin in that because I've got a story about someone who did that exact same thing. Uh, but let's talk about your credentials here, Nat. You uh, okay. lots of books you've written. You know, obviously the one we're talking about today, which is The Exorcist Legacy: Fifty Years of Fear, but several others, uh, mostly on writers, directors, the film industry. You know, you did a, a great biography on Friedkin back in the '90s, and my personal favorite is the Sherry Lewis book on Lamb Chop. Uh, very very, very influential on me as a kid. So this, I mean, quite a spectrum of interests, you know, centered in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Sure, because the early books I wrote because I knew an editor who gave me jobs. Those were the three <laughs> everything books I wrote, the Everything Etiquette book, Everything Trivia book, and the Everything Tall Tales. Now, the Everything Etiquette book is kind of an anomaly because I can literally say I wrote the book on good taste. <laughs> but I've been compelled for the past 25 years to obey it. Yeah. So I have to write thank you notes. You'll get yours eventually and all sorts of things. The other ones were simply what I was able to sell, like the biography of Arthur Penn, biography of, of John Milius, Paul mm-hmm. Mazursky. These are major filmmakers who I happen to have met when I was a press agent, which is a little demimon period in my existence where I was meeting all these people <laughs> sure. and then wound up exploiting the relationship later with their cooperation. <laughs> I mean, that what's a relationship for if not to exploit at some later date? It, 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 at least they could see, they, but, but they could trust me. I was a publicist and so they sure. knew they could trust me because sure. I was on their side. And in fact, that was the case with Sherry and people mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Friedkin, obviously, you had a relationship with him and Blatty, uh, the guy who wrote The Exorcist. So, I mean, th- these relationships come in very handy when you're writing books about their lives. Gives you access. Well, to yes. And I prefer to write books about people who are still alive because then I get to work with them mm-hmm. and make sure their version is on the record. But also, I'm more interested in the creative process than I am in somebody's when they were born or when was their bar mitzvah. <laughs> I think I'd like, I'd like to explore why sure. they make certain decisions. And yeah. the usual interviews these people give when they're publicizing a film doesn't include anything as esoteric as that. So, for example, the privilege, and I mean the privilege, of sitting at the feet of Arthur Penn, mm-hmm. who fired the first shot in the film revolution with Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. and talk not just about Bonnie and Clyde, but about life and about philosophy and about, mm-hmm. you know, the early days of television. I mean, the gift that something like that can give one. And mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. I mean, it's definitely the uh, the advantage you have of doing what you do, right? If you're into that stuff, which I happen to be. Uh, but yeah, you're right. These are these are cultural moments and important things to mortalize in your books. Uh, one One more thing that I have to ask about, which... I found on the dark recesses of the internet, I think last time it was updated, it was 1997, but I'm hoping you're going to give me a, more of an update. Uh, what is Alien Voices? Oh, that was so much fun. Alien Voices was a science fiction-based production company that I formed in 1996 with John Delancey, who's famous for playing Q on the Star Trek television series, and Leonard Nimoy, who's famous for playing somebody else. We had done, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had done a recreation of the Orson Welles Uh, War of the Worlds broadcasts, and we had done that with L.A. Theater Works for National Public Radio with an all-Star Trek cast. We had so much fun doing that that we decided, wouldn't it be nice to get this cast together again to do adaptations of science fiction stories, classic ones, Mm -hmm. by Arthur Conan Doyle and Mm -hmm. Jules Verne, uh, but to do them legitimately, to do them right from the book, not Mm -hmm. to add things like a duck in Journey to the Center of the Earth, you know, sure. but to do them. And we had a ball. We had a blast. We went through Simon & Schuster Audio, mm-hmm. uh, which was a disaster because I sound like I'm complaining. You know, <laughs> Simon & Schuster released the Star Trek material. They they wouldn't let us sell alien voices at Star Trek conventions. We don't okay. know why. Okay. They were protecting their, their brick-and-mortar bookstores, which, of course, we can see the future in that. But we did we did five wonderful tapes, dramatizations, and they were fun working with all the all the Star Trek people from the original series, from Next Generation, a few of them from the, the later series. It was just wonderful to be anointed all of a sudden as a science fiction person and better than that as a Trekker. Yeah. So I kind of entered at the top and sure working did. with Leonard and John was such a gift. That's such amazing. Gift. Now, is there any thought about re-releasing them, you know, digitally, putting them for sale on your website? Uh, that I, I'm long gone 
fact, the company really died when Leonard did because he was the one who who assumed it all. I'm sure that if anybody wants to pirate them, they're probably out there somewhere. I don't know. I <laughs> you really give don't you, know. Is that your okay? Is that your okay to rip them and distribute? <laughs> I have nothing to say about that. Well, I mean, come on. This is an enterprising audience. I'm sure somebody can add two and two and get Star Trek. Uh, look, it's not – I mean, it's not hard. You know, just you know, if you don't own it, uh, try to give you legitimate business. Well, but, uh, it, you know. in, in, in the classic words of Richard Nixon, but it would be wrong. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Richard Nixon is a great segue because I think that's the time period that The Exorcist came out. You know, uh, I don't know that he inspired anything, but The Exorcist, <laughs> you know, the, the Exorcist is one of these movies that I think the cultural significance can't really be understated. You know, I, I hadn't visited it, like really revisited this movie since film school. And it's it was interesting because I read your book first and then I watched the movie, which turns out was the 2000 re-release. So I'm a little disappointed that I didn't see the original original. Uh, that's my fault. But uh, I, I was surprised at how deep and layered this is. And there's a couple of things that I thought were interesting that I wanted to talk to you about. First of all, you know, I would say, I mean, uh, I want to get into this discussion later, but I think that I consider this a horror movie. Many people do. I know that you don't. I know that Blatty didn't. And uh, but but this movie goes beyond that, like so many other really important, culturally significant horror movies, which are really comments on society. And this one, I think more than anything else, started two revolutions. And I want to get your thought on this. The first is the complete demonization of Ouija boards, which I think is ridiculous. And the second is I would argue that this might be the genesis of the satanic panic that in some respects still exists today. So uh, what do you think about the first part of that? Ouija boards, you know, uh, you don't talk about it in your book, but I'm guessing you get this question often. I don't actually, because Ouija boards are kind of this half caste thing between spiritualism and uh, Satanism or the occult. And I'm informed that the occult applies only to uh, bad curses and things like that, not, not spiritualism, reaching dead relatives and stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I had a Ouija board when I was young, and we used it to find out that a friend's father worked for the CIA, which really pissed him off. But <laughs> Wait, is that it, true? It can did, be he, manipulated. did you find that well, out, you know, or people, did you? <laughs> people who worked for the CIA in those days weren't allowed to talk about it. Yeah, right. You know, sort of like fight, fight Club for the government. Still and not. Yeah. Our, our, our friend Jimmy, mm -hmm. um, oh, I, <laughs> here it comes. My, my friend Andy and I knew that Jimmy's father worked for the CIA because whenever kids ask, hey, what does your dad do? What does your dad do? And we lived in Washington, D.C., where everybody's dad worked for the government. Right. Jimmy would never tell who his father was. So we were all working with the planchette and all our fingers on it. And we said, OK, we're going to have a, a, a silent question period. And we all over hand and, and the planchette goes to the C and it goes <laughs> to the I. Before yeah. it gets to the A, Jimmy removed his hand and said, I'm out of here. Said, ah, OK, CIA, fine. And that yeah. was all over. So that was where the Ouija board came in very helpful for me. But I've never given it much credence. You know, it's yeah. it, it's too easy to manipulate that in dowsing for water and things like that. Sure. They can't be proven in a laboratory. So I really put no stake in them at all. As far as the exorcist opening up a satanic cult, I have no direct evidence of that. But I do. No, know I didn't. Say, hold on, hold on, hold on. I didn't say. I, I didn't say open a satanic cult. I said began the satanic oh. panic, which is very different. I don't know. I. I, I really have no idea about that. I, I don't speak to that language. I don't speak to that society if there is one. Uh, the question of whether there is a personified devil is a whole other issue. Yeah, well, I mean, the satanic panic was this belief in the 80s that everything was satanic, whether it was the, you know, Kiss music, uh, Alice Cooper, you know, that it was in music and back, you know. Uh, this well, that's whole, right. Th this whole D yeah. Dungeons and Dragons was vilified in the 70s, Ozzy Osbourne. That all really began in the 70s and I think was the genesis of that was this movie. Golly, I never connected them. I just thought it was a religious fundamentalist doing it. Master film of television here, baby. I, I I connect all kinds of little little, little dots for you there, Nat. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Check it out. It's on Google. <laughs> no, maybe it's on Google. I just came up with that myself. Uh, man, you're a tough interview, Nat. I got to admit, you're a tough interview. Then it will be on Google. Uh, yeah, maybe with with credit to me. Uh, I think so. The first part I've done, I did a previous episode on Ouija boards. Uh, Robert Merch, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I, so, so Ouija boards are uh, a spiritualism, a game of spiritualism, which is so funny to me. People 
have added this whole demonic element. I think beca- because of the exorcist, that's what, you know, th- that's what the, the consensus is. And what's interesting is that's the akin to playing Monopoly too much and saying that it genuinely affects the real estate market. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> like that's, that's kind crazy. of, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the thought. And I, I don't know, I guess you didn't, you maybe didn't put a lot of thought into it because it, it, in the movie, it's a passing thing. It's a small little you know, it's a small little scene, but like so many things you bring out in your book, it's these small little nuances. You know, William Friedkin often says, you know, what he calls grace notes, these little uh, accents on scenes or things that people do that give everything life and fullness and expand upon it. And I think that that Ouija board scene, while small, is not insignificant at all. I think that is arguably one of the most lasting cultural effects of this movie. Well, you're welcome to take away from it what you want and you find applicable. But in my conversations with both Billy Friedkin and William Peter Blatty, the subject never came up about the Ouija board, even with Captain Howdy having his invisible hands on it. It is certainly possible because there's so much else in the movie that can be interpreted in many, many ways. But it isn't something that jumped out at me. And so I leave it to you to do a, a sidebar on that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's more just cultural impact, right? I mean, uh, you, everyone you talk to who talks about Ouija boards says how demonic they are. And this is like the first representation of that, which I always thought was really interesting. Uh, and one of my favorite movies is Ghostbusters. And obviously the possession and the levitation and that is clearly a direct link to this movie as well. Because bef- I don't think anything really before The Exorcist, do you see demonic possession at all? Well, there, uh, there may be, I'll get it. Uh, Louis, get the phone, would you? There may be, something in in the canon of of uh, hammer films or something i i really don't know and that is in my area as they say i'm just i'm just the guy who talks about possession sure well that was a question about possession it was whether it's ever occurred in film before i possessed a ouija board when i was younger that's i guess that didn't possess you which is which is the good part uh so the exorcist so 50th anniversary i'm guessing you know i've heard you do in other interviews that is no coincidence i think you started working on this two years before the 50th anniversary. So it could be ready for the 50th anniversary, which is how you got, how you got to plan these things. Uh, so I imagine did a lot of the research for this book come from the work you did with, with Friedkin early on in the, in the nineties. Uh, and then did you revisit it later on? Even earlier than that, I wrote his biography, which was called hurricane Billy, which is now available as a remainder. Uh, it started in 1988 and finally came out in 1990. And so I got all the stories at the time when the film was successful, but before it became famous, mm-hmm. you know, it was just a successful film. It hadn't become part of the culture yet. And so I was able to get all the stories before they were rewritten mm-hmm. and uh, an ongoing relationship with both Billy. I mean, I've mean, known each other for 50 years. Yeah. And William Peter Blatty uh, gave me a certain insight into it. And I banked a lot of those interviews, some of them uh, that Bill Blatty and I had talked about, I didn't release until after he died in, 19, in 2017, right. because there were some things he didn't want discussed, and those are in the book right now. They're nothing incredibly personal. They, <laughs> he would talk about business practices of some of the producers. He <laughs> yeah. When I sent him the transcript, Bill wrote in there, Nat, please don't use this. I got enough problems. Right. <laughs> so, he, was, he was a wonderful, loving man. Yeah. So I was able to collect the information, but I had no idea at all of going back to The Exorcist. But my new agent, Lee Sobel, said, you know, the publishers have an infatuation with anniversaries, 25, 40, 50. What do we know that's going to be 50 years old soon? And I sort of said casually, oh, The Exorcist. And he had it sold with a matter of five days wow. to Kensington Financial Publishers. So, yeah, he's good. Kensington picked it up and uh, we're it's going into a second printing in late September. So I guess it's doing pretty well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, unfortunately, Billy Friedkin, uh, William Friedkin just died, uh, you know, the past couple months. I, I mean, is there any thought to re-releasing his biography? No, re-release biographies, especially those that ended 33 years before the person died, have little market value. I flirted with expanding it or revisiting it, but sure. you know, I, the I lost a friend, uh, and and he was very much alive and vital when I wrote the book, and we collaborated on it in that sense. I I don't know if I could really go back to it now because everything I would write would be a part of an obituary. I'd have to yeah. really think about that. It's it's far too fresh. He he didn't even make it to 88, and. Uh, it's it means a lot, Daniel. It really does. No, no, I believe that, and I think you not so much an obituary, and that's not, not a cash grab. But you know, you did that in the '90s, and so much he did a lot 
between then and now, right? I mean, even, yeah. uh, you know, even this, you know, he did a documentary called Father of Mort in 2018. He went back to his documentary roots and saw a real exorcism, you know, so he was extraordinarily active. So in a sense, like the first biography is like part one. I mean, there's easily a part two with all the stuff that he did. More like a, um, a yeah. you know, like a, a honoring his his legacy, not necessarily an, an obituary. But I, I understand, you know, uh, obviously it's uh, it's fresh. And he was a, you know, a, a great leader in, in the cinematic world. Uh, so, you know, uh, B- Bill Blatty is a, is a really interesting character. And, uh, you know, I think he, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, of the group of creatives, he was the most religious. And he's one who put a lot of that into The Exorcist when he wrote the book. But I want to go back because uh, my favorite part of his story, and you mentioned it in the book, and I actually found on YouTube the video of him on You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx, well, yeah. <laughs> where he plays, you know, he plays like an Arab sheik. Now, he tell you can tell the story really quickly, because is it true that he wrote a book about how he pretended to be an Arab sheik with celebrities? Because that's what he tells Groucho in that episode. Well, he did write a book called Which Way to Mecca, Jack, which... Okay. Uh, which Bill's son, Michael, gave me, and I'm, I'm working my way through it now. Okay. It's screamingly funny yeah. because it's about somebody stranded in the, in the Middle East. And, of course, he was of, of Lebanese extraction. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it, I mean, you know, it's hard for people to get their minds around the fact that William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, was right. a very funny man and right. wrote comedy for a living. Yeah, yeah. But he was incredibly funny, very witty, and very dry. I mean, unless you know it's a comedy, you have to say, wait a minute. Hold on, yeah. Your mother does what in the Middle East? <laughs> no, it, it's funny. Right. Um, so, yeah, but he posed as, a, as an Arab sheik on You Bet Your Life, and he said he was going to use the winnings to go away and write a book. Now, that's not the actual timing of it, but I'm keeping that in because it sounds good. Right. But he did, he did manage to bamboozle Groucho yeah. and, and, and fool everybody. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that would happen. It, in those days, television would have authors on. Not anymore. Yeah, no, not. Well, it's funny because um, there's a guy I just actually just did an interview with him. Uh, his name's Adam Nedef, and he's a game show. He's a game show historian here in L.A. And it's funny how many celebrities have been on game shows. You know, probably my favorite is you know, Steve Martin. I think he was on a dating show. And it's just interesting because you can see their personality leak through before they're known. Right. And uh-huh. you see Bill, you know, <laughs> Bill Blatty's yeah. person, his comedic personality come I through. And it is hard to believe the exorcist. But, you know, that is it's such a dynamic shift. And uh, I want to get, you know, I, I want to get into s- Obviously, he must have been extraordinarily inspired to do this. You know, in the book, you talk about the real events that inspired him. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm an open-minded skeptic about these things. You know, I did have on on this show a guy named Father Enright, who is an exorcist. Uh, he's an exorcist, and he's told me stories, and you know, they're. I don't want to say impossible to believe, but they're extraordinary. I have a hard time wrapping my head around them. But something about the story in 1940, I believe it was 1949 that um, yeah. he uh, that he found this news article uh, and it kind of just stuck with him for a long time. Tell me a little bit about how that how this all the genesis of this whole thing. When William Peter Blatty was an undergraduate at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. in 1949, he came across a front page story in the Washington Post. Well, it was below the fold mm-hmm. about a boy who had been freed of possession by the demon by priests. But that's the only story. Yeah. It intrigued him, he kind of filed it away mentally. And when it came time for him to write The Exorcist, which means he couldn't get a job writing comedies anymore, he decided to write a book about it. And what inspired him, besides his Jesuit training and his very strong Catholic faith, mm-hmm. was to say that if you could prove that there was a devil, an actual personified devil, then it would have to mean that there was also a God and a life everlasting. Hmm. And so he embarked on what became his trilogy of faith, The Exorcist, the Ninth Configuration, and Legion, which are his books that actually make an argument for the existence of an almighty. Now, being a logician, I would say, if you can prove the existence of apples, that doesn't prove the existence of oranges. Mm -hmm. But to Bill, it was enough of an inspiration to believe that he could argue for people's belief in God by saying that there must be a devil. And in fact, that's a line that Chris McNeil has given in one of the scenes Mm -hmm. when someone says, "If if you blame Satan, for all the evil that's in the world, how could you account for all the good that's in the world? Yeah. And that, I mean, that is, that is the question. I mean, I was raised Catholic and that's something that was always brought up. It's an, it's an unanswerable question. People will give you answers to it, 
but they don't make sense. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't call it the uh, the Trinity of of faith. I mean, but I guess that might be horning in on on Jesus's territory. There, but but it wasn't. There's, 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 only, there's only two trinities. One is Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And the yeah. other is where they explode the bomb. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So maybe not the best idea. But this story really intrigued me. Right. So and I there's there's a lot of. And I think you go into this in your book a little bit, but there was a, a paranormal researcher named R, Mark. I'm gonna get his name wrong. Uh, R, Mark Opasasnik. Opasasnik. Mark. Mark Opasasnik. Opasasnik. I was close. He searched it out. He found yeah. out who the original possessed kid was. Yeah, which is interesting. And it was, yeah. you know, we found out where it was, the house. And I think in one of the documentary, in the documentary, the Father of Mort documentary, William Freakin does, he stands in front of the house. Uh, he found, mm-hmm. you know, we found the boy. It was a boy who was possessed who goes on to become a NASA scientist which know, is bananas like uh anyway but this whole thing was kind of it was kind of swept under the rug now how do you you know doing the research on this how legit it seemed like you and i don't want to put words in your mouth so correct me if i'm wrong but it seemed like you were not necessarily skeptical but weren't convinced of the supernatural elements of the original story how how where are you on that skeptical is a perfect word actually daniel because okay. The facts of the case vary so much by the observer, uh-huh. and there's every indication that it was something that was contrived by the church to create a certain power base okay. because the kid was taken from this parish to that parish, this priest, that priest. He did things mm-hmm. that no two people apparently ever saw him do. Oh, and really? He may well have done them to himself. <laughs> it's just, it, it's so murky. And yeah. at this point, it's impossible to tell. Yeah. But the, he was a very troubled boy. And that seems to be something that his friends remembered. And he came from a family that on the one hand was non-religious, on the other hand was religious to the extremes. So that the boy was pulled, it was very unsettling for him. And he may well have have been just trying to get out of school. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, it's funny because... You know, to me, it, it, Occam's razor, right? I mean, it, that always seems to be the case. And your explanation seems to be the most simple one. And with kids, you know, we saw this, you know, especially during the Salem witch trials, right? Where you had children accusing people of being witches. All of a sudden, parents are taking it seriously. And then they start doubling down on these stories that we now know are completely bogus, right? And so I can understand, I completely can understand where a kid could claim an extra, you know, he was possessed, and then all of a sudden people are taking it really seriously, and he can't bail out now, so you start doubling down yeah. on it, you know? That's really what it seems to be. It's like, oh, gosh, uh, i got to play along with it. I don't really know, because I didn't speak with him and can't impugn his motives. Sure, sure. But it is, uh, by the way, there's, there, there's, there's a tag to the Groucho Marx story, I have to tell you, which is okay. also in the book. Blatty kept in touch with Groucho, because wouldn't you? And when it came time to fill the scene where Father Marin comes into the house, and the demon calls from upstairs, Marin. What they wanted to do is to open the door, and instead of Bax Fancito standing there, Bill Blatty said, I know Groucho Marx, and Groucho's in town. Maybe I can get him to stand there. <laughs> and we'll open the door. And, you know, Marin and Groucho will say, Well, you said the secret word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to send those, those dailies to Warner Brothers to see what the executive said. But, but Groucho, in the last minute, wasn't in town, so they yeah. couldn't shoot it. But can you imagine opening the door and seeing Groucho Marx saying, yeah. Where's your Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wagging his little cigar. So I am a right. huge Groucho Marx fan. Uh, for those listening who may not know who he is, you know, he's the inspiration oh. for those goofy, big nose. Uh, big eyebrowed glasses that people wear to disguise themselves. Uh, he, I mean, if the, I can't believe that's his lasting legacy, given yeah, all right. that he's done. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> touchstones, yeah, I know. you know, Nat, you got to make make touchstones of people. No, I love that story, uh, and and seeing the, you know, the you bet your life uh, was, was fantastic. Uh, this is, you know, and I like that we're talking about the the real story here because you know when it comes to the Exorcist, and as I mentioned, this is a, this is a story. You know, you didn't agree with me on the Ouija boards and satanic panic but i swear to god it's true that this you know even going outside of the film parts you know it, it, that you talked about the cultural importance of this movie lasts it's it's a, it's a, it is a legacy like like your book says and you know i think that one of the other lasting legacies is this thought about what is the difference between heaven and hell good versus evil priest versus demon and this is explored heavily in this book but it's interesting to me that it is very possible that this movie is the ultimate game of telephone in that even the inspiration for it wasn't real. 
but siphoned through the the religious background of Bill Blatty, it suddenly becomes this story, which then William Friedkin turns into, you know, this cultural phenomenon. So it's possible that everything, you know, I don't want to say it's based on a lie, but is much more imagined than real. And I think at the time this was presented much like the, you know, the, uh, the Blair Witch Project was presented as fact and based on a true story, probably more than it was. There are two elements of your question. One of them is a general one, and that is that art creates a response in people. Mm -hmm, and right. you take from art what you bring to it, whether you're religious and see the exorcist, whether you're, you're non-religious or that you want a good horror film. There's so much in the movie that actually can be mined yeah. that it will satisfy most any opinion you levy onto it. Uh, and, and also, it was a kind of a cultural touchstone. Um, mm -hmm. Let me try to explain my my... The way I, I see it is not as a horror film, but you'll understand what I'm saying. It was far deeper than that, because when you look at a horror film, you go to the theater, you see The Mummy, you see Frankenstein's monster, you see Jason or, or Freddy. Mm -hmm. When you come home, those monsters are still in the theater. But when you get home, Satan could be waiting for you in the hall closet. Mm -hmm. And so something about the religious indoctrination that we've been going through for 2000 years or longer in Western civilization yeah. that plants it the seed of doubt of fear and of satan or something that isn't quite there why it's more frightening than god i don't understand i mean <laughs> something that can an that can create the universe including satan yeah is scarier than satan yeah. but that isn't the way people go it's, right. it's a very powerful story and also there's so much in the story of the exorcist that makes a touch on reality you mentioned reality and I'll, I'll address that now mm. and that is that Everything that you see on screen in The Exorcist actually happened. Mm -hmm. Now, it didn't happen because Linda Blair was possessed. It happened because the mechanical effects made the bed shake, mm -hmm. made the levitate. It made doors crack and things fall over. All of these were mechanical effects done in front of the camera. No optical effects except for the pea soup, which is all other story. Right. And because of that, it has a veracity of reality. Yes. The soundtrack was a magnetic soundtrack instead of an optical soundtrack, which in those days was before Dolby. And it gave you a full decibel range where you could hear somebody whispering and then hear the demon shouting from Aaron. And you could hear everything without background noise. And what I'm saying is there was a realism in the film that audiences hadn't seen. That went through their skin. And the final part of it was, The Exorcist is not just about a little girl who's possessed. There are other stories. There's about the priest who's lost his faith, the priest who's coming face to face with his old demon, a mother going to any length to protect her child, and who killed the movie director, Burke Dennings. These are four actual storylines that can right. be followed through the action. It's not about a bunch of kids getting slaughtered in a house right. because they made the mistake of having sex. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, here's the, here's the thing. See, I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. To me, that just makes it an excellent horror movie. Right. I mean, it's it's a horror movie that makes you think, but it is without question a horror movie. I mean, it is about a monster that threatens people around them. Right. Everything else you're talking about it also exists. Uh, right. But I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned that Bill Blatty says that it's uh, a super. What's, how do you say exactly? A supernatural murder mystery. Supernatural, supernatural detective. Story. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, to me, that is someone who does. Look, and this is my opinion. Uh, you feel free to respond when I'm through. That that to me shows a complete lack of understanding of not only this movie, but what a horror movie is. No one's going in there. You know, they're not thinking like, hey, you know what? I'm done with this Agatha Christie novel. Uh, I'm looking for a new a new mystery. What, what do you want to watch? Oh, oh, The Exorcist is a is a great mystery. novel. No, it's a horror movie <laughs> about a possession, about a, a demon that comes into a child and threatens everyone, the lives of everyone around it, murders people uh, and threatens to destroy, you know, destroy everything. That's if that's not. And you said it com goes home with you 100 percent. Right. That's what made Freddy Krueger so scary is that he didn't just live in the theater. He lived in your dreams. So you can't sleep when you go home. You don't think people were scared that you couldn't go to sleep. Right. So uh, anyway, I, I, I'm 100 percent convinced this is a horror movie, but has an artistic level that is reserved for only the elite horror movies. And I would put The Shining and even Night of the Living Dead on that same list. Insisting that it's a horror movie on their part might be a bit facetious, I admit. Yeah. But when you look at the exorcist, there's only one fright in the whole film. And that's when Chris McNeil is in the attic looking for rats and the candle she's holding flares up. That's the only shock in the whole film. 
Nobody jumps out of the shadows. You mean jump it's scare? Still- you mean jump scare? Because when her head turns around, that's a shock. Well, okay, I didn't. I'd read the book first, so okay. you know, I didn't. Uh, well, you studied the movie, Nat. Come on, no, that's not a bailout. You did a whole <laughs> 300 pages no, on the was, book. You missed that part? Come on, buddy. <laughs> when I was originally parting the door, yeah. <laughs> the Exorcist legacy starts off where I'm the publicist for the yes. theater chain. There's the Exorcist in Boston. Great story, the by the way. Yeah. <laughs> who couldn't come in and see the movie who weren't critics. I didn't see the movie for a couple of days. I couldn't get to the damn theater. It was full of crowds. So that's a long story. But let, let's also mention that The Exorcist Legacy also talks about the other Exorcist films. You know, there's The Heretic, which like Fight Club, we don't talk about. And then there's Legion. And then there's Dominion. And then there's uh, the Beginning. And there's the television series. And now there's a new one's coming out. Sure. So The Exorcist is certainly with us. And we're trying to chronicle all of them in the book. But of course, it's the original Exorcist. It takes up half the book and that everybody's interested in because it still scares people. There are still people that you know who are afraid to see the movie. Yeah, right. That's strange to me. You know, and it, it, you do cover all of the the, the series. Uh, I'm going to focus on the original Exorcist because I think, again, I think people do enjoy that one the most. Uh, I haven't seen the other ones. And I, I don't, you know, it's kind of like this is a perfect example of in the horror genre where the first movie's amazing and the rest are kind of like they feel like cash grabs, you know. I mean, like the first Saw movie is really good. It's a really good movie. The rest are, you know, just murder porn. You know, that's not really what I'm yeah, what into. Uh, Nightmare at Elm Street odds, Star Trek evens. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a rule. There's rules. So if we followed here, Nat. Uh, but, you know, this is this is there's a couple of interesting, interesting things. I do love that story about how you were protecting the uh, the theater. <laughs> you couldn't even see it. And you got it was the day before it came out. It comes out on it was scheduled to come out on December 26th of 1973. So on Christmas Day, you're protecting <laughs> the public from this movie on, you know, on Jesus's birthday. Yes. And while oh, I forgot to send a card. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's true. And, and in fact, uh, you can imagine all these film critics being torn away from the bosom of family on Christmas morning. <laughs> right. See a movie about a girl whose head spins around. And yeah. we had no complaints about that. Yeah. No. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But the interesting thing was at that point, nobody knew we were supposed to throw up. Yeah. That was a strange thing. Strange phenomenon that everyone was barfing. We don't know what happened. But Warner Brothers did a very informal survey, probably asking theater managers who had to clean up the carpet. <laughs> yeah, right. Who couldn't wait to the street to take off their Technicolor yawn. And what we found happened um, was, and you've read the book, so I can't ask you this, but the people who were most inclined to get sick in the film were men. Yeah, weird. Not women. And the point at which it happened was not the girl's head spinning around or the crucifix seed. It was in the hospital where they did it actually... anatomically correct arteriogram with blood spurting out. And the reasoning that we were able to apply to that was the reason women stayed was women have a mothering instinct and they were very protective of the child. Mm -hmm. And any woman who goes through childbirth that's a lot braver than the man who made her pregnant <laughs> fair enough that I, yeah i can't hey i can't argue with that and i shouldn't argue with that uh we'll, we'll say that uh, i mean that is a pretty intense scene that no one ever talks about i had forgotten about it uh but yeah that's that's a lot i mean that's a pretty i mean medical you know medical procedures are are terrifying in and of themselves you said there's no shocks in this movie Nat. there's another one where uh you know shot of blood shooting out of her neck uh you know this is one of the things that i think is also really incredible about this particular phenomenon the exorcist phenomenon is the marketing you know this was as i kind of alluded to before this was marketed not necessarily as a true story but definitely they didn't hide from a based on a true story part of it uh you know there's a whole rumor that the that it was cursed, which I know you don't particularly like to talk about. But, you know, the the thought that the movie was cursed, you know, this is the same. This is akin to the Paul is dead marketing strategy, which I think was highly effective. Uh, you know, I would even say when I was learning Shakespeare in, in high school, there's a rumor that in Macbeth that there's a, a real, you know, supernatural occult ritual built into the words of the play, which is why it's such bad luck to mention it when you're doing the actual theater, the stage version of it. Right. It, it's called the Scottish play. Nobody ever says the M word. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so uh, what do you think? I mean, I don't know if you really talk a lot about the marketing of it, but to me, it was fantastic and really amped people up to get them really excited and nervous to watch it so that 
maybe that was part of the throwing up, but also the people today, you were interviewed by a couple people who hadn't seen the movie, which blows my mind. The original film was a surprise to Warner Brothers because it went over schedule, it went over budget, and they finally got behind it. But even then, they didn't know how to market it. The first poster that somebody produced was a picture of Reagan with the crucifix, something like God help her or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Freak, and if, if you do that, it, it's all over. So they went with the <laughs> teaser campaign. The only trailer that preceded the film at all was a 30 yeah. second trailer that simply showed the poster, which was Marin coming to the house with the light shining yeah. out of his bedroom yeah. window. Some, something almost beyond comprehension is happening yeah. to a girl, and et cetera, et cetera. That's all anybody knew because A, the book had been selling pretty well and people sort of knew what it was, but not until the film opened was Warner Brothers aware. It only opened in 22 theaters. They didn't open it on on 2,000 theaters as they would have done today. Uh, they couldn't get prints ready in time. That's one reason. But it was also something that in those days they would build up, you know, a couple of theaters, the suburbs, and then the drive-ins and everybody. So it was yeah. a whole different marketing era in 1973. But they didn't know how big a monster hit they had. They discovered right. within 24 hours. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's something people hadn't seen before. And it, it's it was something that if you're religious, this is genuinely scary. This is a part of your cultural belief system. Right. I mean, so it it makes sense to me uh, that that it, that, you know, that it had that uh, effect on people and it, it coming out right after Christmas. Uh, interesting, you know, uh, interesting release date. Uh, Halloween, I guess now would be more typical if you want to really cash in. But I think that might have been a stroke of genius, but I don't know. A lot of it was just dumb luck. They literally didn't finish or the dumb film. luck. They couldn't get it out of the lab any sooner than they did. In fact, they were shipping yeah. it pretty wet, which means they hadn't been inspected first, setting up to the theater. Uh, and oh, some right, people yeah. To, like, like Tim Lucas, who used to do Video Watchdog magazine, he's probably the nation's foremost expert on horror films and genre films, was saying that he was an usher at a theater and was invited in Ohio to uh, the midnight screening where the projectionist was setting it up. So mm -hmm. you imagine watching a movie they'd heard about midnight. Yeah. yeah. Black, <laughs> watching the movie while the projectionist is going with focus. So a lot right. of people have their own experiences with the actresses divorced from what the normal audience would do. We, we tried to speak yeah. to them with, with the book. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. That's really cool. The unique part of that. Uh, you know, one of the things I don't before we go too far, because I want to talk a little bit about what the movie's about, because I, to me, the movie was about something actually that's different than probably the 15 things you talk about in your book. And you cover a lot. Uh, but I want to get that in a second. But you mentioned a lot of these subplots, you know, and there was one subplot that, again, it's one of these things that like the Ouija board, it's only in a it's not even really shown. You, you, they talk about it in one scene, but it's a really big subplot. And you correct me if, I, if I'm seeing this, you know, if I'm, if I'm not seeing this correctly, but there's kind of this weird, like pedophilia subplot, ironically, not by a Catholic priest, uh, where Dennings, who ends up, you know, he, he's the director who falls to his death from Reagan's room. There's questions about, like, why was he in her room during the night of the party? You know, was no one saw him. No one really saw him die. Uh, this is weird subplot that no one really talks about. Uh, and we really don't get an answer on how he was killed. But it would seem like Reagan pushed either Reagan pushed him out the window or it's totally unrelated. And I don't think it's the second one. As Kinderman said, the victim's head was turned all the way around. You're right. Yeah. And he was pushed out the window in, in a normal defenestration. You fall straight down. Now, hold on. Now, for for the for my for my monosyllabic people out there, that is being thrown from a window. Defenestration, yes. one of my favorite words out there. Yeah, yeah. All right, continue, please. Fenestra <laughs> everyone with yeah. A fenestra means window, and <laughs> defenestration was without a window. And 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 crime scene investigators will know that if a person falls straight down, they probably committed suicide by jumping from a window. If there's any distance between them and the foot of the building, they were probably right. pushed. And Burke Dennings right. went down the Hitchcock steps. So clearly yes. he was pushed after his head was turned around. Um, right. There is a question as to what Burke was doing up there. Supposedly he was just babysitting when Sharon went out to the pharmacy to pick up Reagan's medication. And that's all we know, either in the book or in the movie. Yeah. We do know that the Dennings is a, a disreputable man and a drunk and was probably mm -hmm. drunk up there. But that had yes. nothing to do with his death. It's just that Reagan thought or the demon in Reagan thought that Burke Dennings was attracted to Chris McNeil to the mother and she was using the demon to get back for this jealousy that's the only thing i can ascribe from the information in the book 
Yes. As far as pedophilia or anything else, this isn't a, this is Washington D.C., but it isn't a pizza place. <laughs> sure, right. I wasn't the pizza place either, but yeah, I you know it's it's a, it's one of those things where it feels hinted at, but it's just something it's something I, I picked up on. Uh, so one of the you know there's a couple other things that I kind of wanted to to mention here about the Exorcist. So um, when you talk about what it's about, you know you. you this is it's it's not necessarily a subject of debate because it's it's about all of these things as you mentioned it's art it, it's whatever what people bring whatever people want to take from it they can you know but some of the easiest are there's a lot of conflict you know I've got like uh, science versus faith uh, modernity versus antiquity you know priest versus demon um, young versus old there's a lot of stuff really happening in. I think all of this, but one of the ones that really kind of struck out to me was this, you know, science versus faith in a way, because what we see really the plot of the movie is weird things are happening to Reagan. They take her to a bunch of scientists. They can't figure it out, but the answer is faith. And this ancient ritual is what gets rid of the demon, right? Mm -hmm. So it is, to me, to me, that's what stuck out, is it's science versus faith. But, you know, a lot of people see many different things in this. You've nailed it, I think, because the film is stacked, of course, because it is a film about faith. So naturally, faith is going to trump science. Sure. Well, right. that, <laughs> yeah, it'd be weird if it didn't. That's, that's true. You know, that's, the sides are kind of stacked. Sure. But also, there are some things we simply can't explain. You know, the old the old caution in a science fiction film, Doctor, there are some things mankind isn't meant to know. Mm -hmm. Well, there are fewer right. and fewer of those as science marches on in that self-correcting style. But what makes the film effective is, of course, that it's about something intangible. Louis, get the phone, would you? Uh, Louis, my dog, for those of you who joined us late. Oh, well, so, uh, you know, I want to I want to talk about a little bit about um, uh, two other things here, you know, because in this movie, you, it, they really have definitions on what is profane and what is obscene, right? And and so what you know the things that would shock someone that a little girl would say it's mostly related to sex or uh, desecration of religious objects or both at the same time, which is interesting because I remember I, I was working on a show and we had a, um, a production office that was in Canada, uh, French, French, uh, French Canada. Uh, did I say French Canada? That's right. In Montreal. And what was interesting is in French, a lot of the swear words are just shortened versions of like Catholic terms. And it's because you're being, you know, uh, obscene to to God. Uh, but that's kind of interesting because they really define what is insults against God and everyone in there um, by those two particular you know, particular subjects. Was there a question in there somewhere? <laughs> um, I pledge a thousand dollars. I don't know what to say. The the uh, I know when I'm being handed a load, Daniel. Uh, when when Blatty was writing this, when Blatty was writing the script, Billy asked Billy Friedkin asked him to put in as much obscenity as he could, and so Blatty wrote the most vile, vulgar, horrible things he could think of, and then they had this little twelve-year-old girl speak them. And I think on YouTube they may still have some of the actual floor footage that has Linda speaking in her, you know, young voice all these terrible things before Mercedes McCambridge and others came in and overdubbed the dialogue into what we now know as the demon's voice. But right. the demon is not pleasant. You know, it's not a gentleman. It is like, it is like you go to see a Dracula movie and you say, Oh, he's a gentleman. I can certainly, you know, make dead talk with him. No, you can't. Sure. He's friggin' Dracula. Well, the yeah. same thing with Pazuzu or any other demon. They may yeah. say nice things, but they could also lie and they could also try to distract you and get into your mind, which is what the demon does in The Exorcist. But they wanted something that was so vulgar that it would repel the audience. And that's certainly what Blatty was able to, to his shame, I think, a person will come up with. How he could think of these things shows they were in there to begin with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just interesting that it's kind of a sign of the times, right? I mean, um, how do you how do you represent a demon in human terms? You know, what is what is obscene? Uh, I think it's just a, an interesting question. Uh, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, the Catholic faith has gone through, you know, quite a, a revelation, uh, a revolution even between the, when this movie came out in the 70s and now. Uh, and it's funny that, you know, in this movie, the Catholic priests are the heroes. 
you know, and what's interesting to some people now that is akin to after the molestation revelations and everything that's going on with priests, that is akin to like the birth of a nation having the KKK <laughs> as the heroes. You know, I mean, it's it's a kind of an it, when you look back, it's it's strange. Well, there is that possibility because of what the church has done to itself sure. in the 15 years since the exorcist. But, you know, Hollywood yeah. has long had a fascination with priests, which is yeah. interesting because Hollywood was founded by Jews. In fact, right. the motto, yeah. if I remember, was the movies are all about Jewish Hollywood telling Protestant America how to be more Catholic. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to find many rabbis in movies other than the jazz singer, and you're certainly not going to find many plain old Protestants, unless they're like some guy who organizes Little League or something, you know, benign like that. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly, as, as Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of MGN, said, uh, rabbis aren't interesting. Priests are interesting. They have all that stuff. Yeah, and right. Again, it was the yeah. ritual, the ritual he was talking about. And the ritual seduced William Friedkin. The ritual mm -hmm. is what appeals to many people in the church and people of yeah. faith. And yeah, I yeah. think it's still something that fascinates anybody. I've gone to sure. many Catholic services, and they're beautiful, absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful. I don't mm -hmm. believe any of it, but mm -hmm. it's seductive to see all of these people who've been doing these for thousands of years. Ev is, by the way, for even longer, have Jews. Yeah. Right. The ritual yeah. is what religion is all about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, religion, you could say, is just rituals that are, you know, collected over a millennia. Right. I mean, that's really, well, uh, you know, yeah, you know, rituals are a way of inculcating a belief in something that doesn't exist to people who need to believe in something. Yeah, right. No, that's, that's true. And they are there. It, it's interesting to see the cultural differences. Right. I mean, because when, when you really think about the exorcist, you know, the Catholic Church has one answer to this. And to believe the reality of this movie, you have to believe that that is the only answer. But, you know, mm -hmm. Catholicism is one belief system. You know, how would people in other in other cultures that phenomenon, if you believe in demons, that phenomenon exists everywhere. Like, how would other cultures yeah. deal with this exact same phenomenon? I mean, it's interesting. Like if you made the if you made the exorcist, uh, you know, in the Hindu religion, like what what's that like with the reincarnation as an addition, you know, I mean, right. There, I, there are exorcists in every culture with every mm -hmm. religion. But it's yeah. interesting that the movie The Exorcist worldwide did a ton of business. So it isn't just the Catholics and, and Western religion people are seeing it. It clearly yeah. had something for everybody. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun, you know. Max Fancido says, because he played the exorcist, that in Sweden, the devil is a fool. They make fun mm -hmm. of him. So he didn't really yeah. take seriously that part of it. And I think he was an atheist anyway, but he still played it because he's an actor. So the devil has a different personage in each civilization, depending on what their culture is like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's fascinating because I think especially in America, we tend to think that our views are the only views that, that matter. And when you start looking out and looking at other cultures, it's really, really cool the way everyone kind of explains kind of the same phenomenon over and over again in different in just very different ways. You know, you're absolutely right. And in fact, if you take Arthur C. Clarke's uh, milestone of a book, Childhood's End, which is where overlords come down and in a sense, help the human civilization into the next phase of its existence. When the overlords finally reveal themselves, they're demons. They're the devil. Yeah, right. And yeah, yeah, Clark's yeah. philosophy is that because we have genetic memory, that we know the beginning and the end of the human race in each mm. one of us, it was such a shock to see these overlords coming that we naturally couldn't explain it. So we made that horrible leathery thing with the spiked tail and the horns as sure. the devil. But in fact, it was our savior. So right. it's, a, it's a very interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it certainly is. Uh, that'll mess with you if you think about that that too hard. Uh, one thing, you know, I want to close with with uh, something that I thought was a, a really cool admission. Uh, in there's a documentary called Leap of Faith where William Friedkin is interviewed for almost two hours about <laughs> The Exorcist, which is uh, an exercise in megalomania, I, I would say. But uh, it's an interesting, interesting documentary. But he talks about the final scene in The Exorcist as how he doesn't understand it. And I remember watching it and I had the same questions that he did about how does this even make sense as an ending, you know? And, and in some ways, I think that the spirit of it is really interesting, you know, the self-sacrifice element, but the way it's constructed and the way it works kind of destroys everything that they've established in the entire movie. Uh, this was a kind of, I mean, this is kind of a strange admission, weird ending. Did you have that when you saw this the first time? Did this, did this bother you? Or did you, like me, the first time I saw it, not think about it? 
Well, it's interesting because Bill Blatty rewrote the ending of his book when he put out their 40th anniversary edition in oh. whatever 1971 plus 40 is. Because yeah. in the original book, <laughs> yeah. the whole scene upstairs where Father Karras throttles Reagan and says, come into me, take me, take me. That's all done off screen in the original novel. Sharon and Chris are having tea downstairs in the living room when they hear noises upstairs and then they run up. And by that time, Reagan is on the, on the floor crying and Father Karras has been out the window. So when Blatty rewrote the ending of the book, he had to really put a pin in it. And he did write that scene, which had been worked out in the movie some years before. Mm -hmm. There are some people who think that Father Karras kills himself. There are some people who think that Father Karras takes the demon with him. But mm -hmm. in fact, if you single frame the movie, you'll see that he's not in the demon makeup when he right. jumps out the window. And this is <laughs> so much for spoilers, right? right. Um, because this means that he has jumped out the window of its own free will and done the holiest thing you can possibly do, which is sacrifice your life to save another life. Yeah. And the demon has gone off into wherever void the demons go. It's, you have to believe in possession to believe in the demons go back to demon land or someplace afterwards. There's no yes. rules that she can't be repossessed, but not for this movie. It's later. Right, and, yeah. And so uh, there's no question that Karis does sacrifice his life, and he does it when he is not possessed, but he does it to prevent the demon from going back into Reagan. That's the way the film plays out. People have attached all kinds of other interpretations. And I think Billy was muddying the waters on purpose because he yeah. had a tendency to put in what he called textures, which is sticking something into the very end of a movie that makes the audience go, wait, what? The mm -hmm. best example is The French Connection, where Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle goes through the old warehouse looking for Frog One, yeah, right. shoots, a, shoots an FBI band by mistake, and then the screen goes black and we hear bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Well, did, <laughs> right. did Popeye Doyle take his own life? Did he right. shoot at nothing? Did he shoot at the bad guy? And the explanation behind that is that Billy and Buzz Knudsen at Tadeo Sound were wrapping the film up. They're about to send it off to Fox to have the negative cut. And Billy said, let's end this film with a bang. And they stuck in three bangs. That's <laughs> Literally. But, <laughs> right. yeah. but for, for 50 some years, 53 years, people have said, what do those shots mean? Well, that's what they mean. They mean that Billy said something provocative, like the monolith in 2001, or is Deckard a replicant in Blade Runner that people right. keep on talking about, and it keeps the film alive and intriguing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think all of that's right. And even hearing you explain it, it feels like the ending is more a construct of what we had to do to make the movie and make the narrative work, not what actually makes the most logical sense. Right. Like the, what makes the most logical sense would be the demon goes into him. He jumps out the window and kills the demon and self-sacrifices. Otherwise. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, the yeah. demon could just go back into Reagan. If it jumped to him that easily, it could go back into Reagan. It doesn't make it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I don't want to belabor it, yeah. but it's just one of those things where like. Well, that's uh, right. Right. But you remember, the demon was after him to begin with. So, yeah, if, right. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if the demon possesses him so that he jumps out the window, a he's not sacrificing his life to save Reagan and b the demon is one. And the yeah. demon can't win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, I think if he's after Karis and Karis kills himself and also kind of loses his faith in the process, he's still won. And the demon goes back to demon land to do that again to somebody else. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it, but it's just it's to me, it's you know, I don't want to say it's not a flaw, but it's I wish it was more definitive in in following the rules that it had established earlier. But it doesn't you know, it doesn't make it an, an unsatisfying ending. It's still a great movie, you know. Well, people have been talking about it for 50 years, so I guess we're right. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there is no right or wrong, I don't think. Um, but but I mean, it's it's a it's that's the end of the movie uh, end of the interview, coincidentally. But it's not the end of people learning about The Exorcist, because you've got this great book out, uh, The Exorcist Legacy, uh, 50 Years of Fear. Uh, where can people find it? There it is right there. If you're watching this on Thank YouTube, you there, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, where can people find it? Where can people find you to learn more? The Exorcist Legacy is published by Kensington Citadel. It is available on Amazon and all fine booksellers on everything and everybody. It's going into a second printing soon. I'm very happy about that. The publisher seems to be happy, and so am I. I'm I'm really kind of proud that after 28 books, I finally have one that's not being published <laughs> in the remainder. Uh, and I've had wonderful support from the publisher. People have really been interested, and I think we've we, we've managed to do something, I think, culturally with this. So that is that is what is happening with The Exorcist. In two months, at the end of October, I have also from Citadel, I have a book on Scarface coming out called Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface, about the 1932 film and the 1983 remake. And somewhere in the middle, I have a book coming out from Applause Books, which I don't happen to have handy, 
called Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors, about how director filmmaker Otto Preminger destroyed the censorious Hollywood production code. So I've, <laughs> I've been doing a lot during COVID. Let's put it that sure. way. Sure. Hey, you've been keeping busy. Uh, what about social media? Do you do that? Oh, a little bit on Facebook, but I'm having enough problems as it is just keeping my work in front of me. I, I don't do a lot of social media. Maybe I learned to one of these days. It took me a long time to figure out how to use Skype to be able to talk to you. I'm not going to go enough. on to TikTok or anything. Fair enough. Why make why, why make our lives any more difficult? I don't like doing that either. Uh, and if, but if you want to make your life just a little bit more difficult, you can jump on the web. FascinatingNouns.com is where you find the show. Uh, we are on Facebook at Fascinating Nouns and on uh, X, now Twitter, at Fascinating Noun. And if you're listening to the audio version, Check out the YouTube version, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. Uh, this has been just a great conversation that uh, The Exorcist, one of my favorite movies, uh, you know, I, I can't say it's often overlooked. It's probably more scrutinized than any other movie <laughs> besides maybe Citizen Kane. Uh, but it, a great book. Yeah, I mean, you've really chronicled everything, the, the, the creatives behind it, the movie itself, the cultural phenomenon. Excellent job with the book. I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, so thank you for that addition to, to culture and for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Daniel. Go out there and have a good time with life. I will. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. and We even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.